Hello and welcome to today's Leader Professional Development webinar. I'm your moderator, Jim Heft of U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command's Communication Directorate. Today's session is on talent management. Our guest is retired Lieutenant General Thomas Bostick, former commanding general of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Hosting today's session is Lieutenant General Ted Martin, Deputy Commanding General and Chief of Staff of TRADOC. Welcome both, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. So our discussion will examine how talent management relates to military and civilian careers, how it relates to mentorship and diversity and inclusion. And we want you to participate. Whether you're watching the webinar on our Facebook page at U.S. Army TRADOC or on TRADOC's website, tradoc.army.mil watch, leave a question for us in the comments section or in the chat room. All, as always, keep the comments professional and pertinent. But remember, you're driving this conversation, so we need your questions. Now, speaking of questions, we have started to post to social media responses to those questions that were asked last session, and we'll continue to do so. If your question today doesn't get responded to, it may get answered in one of our short videos that, again, appear on our Facebook page, uh, Instagram, inter um, Twitter, etc. Also, don't let the conversation stop here. After all, this is only an hour. Continue these conversations at your units or in your squad. We're building cohesive teams, and that starts with you. Now, normally General Paul E. Funk II, Commanding General of TRADOC, would be here with us. But unfortunately, he has been called away. However, he's recorded for us some opening remarks. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the TRADOC uh, Leader Professional Development Series on Diversity and Inclusion. I'm sorry I won't be able to be with you today. Today you're going to see and get to interact with one of my true heroes, a, a man that knows uh, needs no introduction, but let me just talk about the kind of kind of man this is. This, this man helped me. He was one of my battle buddies. He's one of my friends. He actually led me. When it, in a very tough time as we uh, got ready to deploy in OIF-2. He was the Deputy Commanding General for the 1st Cavalry Division, and I was the G3. And this is a shared experience. We are, in fact, friends for life, and we are, in fact, battle buddies in the truest sense of the word. So while I have to go out and take care of another Army family today, let me just uh, turn over my TRADOC family to one of my legendary great friends, a man who has lived the legend and has been uh, at the highest echelons of our great army. Thank you. Well, you can tell how important it was uh, for General Funk to want to be here for sure. But again, the mission continues and uh, we have always a, the next soldier up mentality. That's why we have a Deputy Commanding General. And so, Lieutenant General Martin, thanks for being here. Welcome. Jim, thanks a lot uh, for being here today. And uh, it's really hard for me to improve on what uh, General Funk said. But what I would like to say is uh, thanks uh, to the listening audience out there uh, for joining us. Uh, your first, one of the first questions we got last uh, week or last month when we kicked this off was, where's the beef? When are we going to really start getting down and dirty and talking about it. That's happening right here uh, today. Uh, last week during uh, the Association of the United States Army uh, uh, Symposium, 
although it was online, the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army and the Sergeant Major of the Army all said the same thing. Our number one uh, priority is our people. Our people are our future, and this is all about people. So here uh, today, we're very fortunate, as General Funk said, to have Lieutenant General Retired Tom Bostick. So uh, General Bostick is a 1978 graduate of the United States Military Academy, where he commissioned as a combat engineer. He's done everything at every level up to and including being the 53rd Chief of the Corps of Engineers. He was the Assistant Division Commander for both maneuver and support for the 1st Cavalry Division and took them into Iraq. He served in Kosovo. He was uh, the Commanding General of Recruiting Command during the tough days, sir, when they sent you down there to get things back on the rails. He was also the Department of the Army G1 uh, during the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, and as I said, culminating his career as the 53rd Chief of the Corps of Engineers. General Bostic, sir, thanks for joining us today, and I'm glad to have you here. Well, General Larton, uh, thank you for that kind introduction. also want to thank uh, General Paul Funk. Uh, we are battle buddies and have come a long way. And Jim, thank you for all that you're doing as a great civilian and, and working for the Army. Um, as I think about talent management, and I looked at General Funk, uh, I thought back to our days in First Cav and when we deployed, and, and maybe somebody ought to do a case study of that division because General Funk was our G3, uh, General Daly was our Deputy G4, uh, General Abrams was our uh, First Brigade Commander, General Murray was our Third Brigade Commander, and General McConville was our Aviation uh, Brigade Commander. So uh, there's a lot of great talent, uh, and, I'm, and that just is at the surf, at top surface of, of the talent. There's much more talent in the non-commissioned officers and in the enlisted soldiers and, and the civilians and the family members did a tremendous job as we deployed. I thought I'd talk about both talent management and diversity, and, and first talk about when I, I thought about diversity, when it really struck me, and, and, and it may come to you as a surprise, but, but I was a lieutenant colonel, and I was back in your old stomping grounds at the National Training Center. And I got out of my pup tent, and in the, in the, before we went into the NTC, I got out of my pup tent, walked over for breakfast, and uh, I was walking away, and this African-American soldier, he was from an artillery unit, and I'm an engineer, so, and I'm walking this way, and he's walking that way, and his neck's doing this, and he's staring at me. And I stopped and I said, what are you looking at? And, I, and he said, sir, I'm looking at you. And I, I said, okay, I, I know you're looking at me, but why are you looking at me like that? And he goes, well, sir, you're the only one. And I said, the only one what? And he said, well, sir, you're the only brother in command in this whole division. I said, really? And you know, you think about a division, 25,000 soldiers, maybe 50 to 55 battalion commanders and up. Uh, with the name Commander in their name, and, and he said, I'm the only one. So I started looking around and I realized, he's right, I'm the only one. And then he, he was about 25 yards away from me and looked back and he said, hey, sir, we're really proud of you. And I said, well, you know, my dad was a Sergeant Major and enlisted soldier all his life, and, and I'm really proud of you. And, uh, and then he walked another 25 yards, and he was about 50 yards away from me now. He said, hey, sir. And I said, yes, <laughs> don't get out. And I, 
I, I kind of cringed because I was supposed to get out after five years. I wasn't supposed to be here, so I was kind of feeling like, don't put that on me. Um, but, you know, I went on to serve 38 years, 27 households, and, and I always thought about that soldier, and I thought about what diversity must have meant to him, that, that he wasn't in my unit, but he was in this artillery unit, but he was looking over at us and feeling like, hey, there's somebody there that's going to take care of us. You know, he knows what it's like to be me. And I'm going to get a fair shot, um, even though he's not my chain of command. Somehow I'm going to get a fair shot. So, so I, I've always tried to remember that and tried to help others realize that they are role models. I was at the Black Engineer of the Year Award, and now I'm a three-star general. And this, this father and his son, African-American, they were from Cincinnati, but they were in D.C. For the, for the event. And, and the father looks at the young boy, he's about this tall, and he says, well, tell the general what you'd like to do when you grow up. And he says, well, I'd like to be a soldier. And I said, well, you didn't have to say that just because I'm here. And he said, I didn't. <laughs> I said, oh, burst my bubble. <laughs> I said, why did you say it? And he pointed, and there was a cadet that was walking. And he saw this cadet in his military uniform. He said, I want to be like him. So I go running after this cadet. And you can imagine three-star general grabbing this cadet. I said, you're a role model. And he goes, excuse me, sir? <laughs> and I said, come with me. So I, I bring him over, and he's standing, and, and we take a photo. And, and I, I just felt like, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a sergeant. You can be... Uh, male, female, you, you, you are a role model to an individual you probably don't know that you probably don't know. And I was fortunate as a lieutenant colonel for this young sergeant to say that to me, and it stuck with me in the importance of, of, of diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. And, and when I think about diversity, I also don't think about race all the time because sometimes it's about young people and older people like me working together to find the right solution. And I'll give you another example. When, um, I was in Bosnia and I had this really hard boss named General Ellis, Major General Ellis, and I loved him. He always gave me impossible missions. and. Um, General Ellis looked at me and he says, you know, we've been living in tents for a year. Mud and snow and the 1st Cavalry Division's coming in and we want that division to live in sea huts. But I don't want these single sea huts. I want sea huts that have unit integrity. And I want sea huts that have overhead covers so that the soldiers walking at night to go to the bathroom, they've got a place they, they can do it without getting wet. And and I want squad integrity, platoon integrity, and I want integrity at the company level. So I got our smartest professional engineers together and we're doing all this work and, and we went up to show General Ellis and General Ellis says, no, that's not what I'm looking for. And I said, well, General Ellis, what are you looking for? I'll know it when you show it to me. So, so we did three more iterations and we never got it right. And we're in, the, in a conference room late at night one day and there was this young second lieutenant, and his name was Ross Davidson. 
and we were debating back and forth on what General Ellis wanted, and Ross raised his hand. He said, Second Lieutenant Davidson, what do you have? He said, Sir, I, I think I know what General Ellis wants. I said, Oh. So um, <laughs> we've been working on this thing for three iterations. Um, we've been kicked out of General Ellis's office three times. I've got all sorts of professional engineers here who seem to know what they're doing. I'm paying this contractor all kinds of money to help me figure out what the answer is, and we haven't been able to figure it out, but Second Lieutenant Davidson, two weeks into his deployment into Bosnia, you know what the right answer is. Now, I didn't say all that, but that's what I was thinking. And, um, and I said, well, Second Lieutenant Davidson, why, why don't you drop what you think uh, you think the answer is, and, and I'll take it up to General Ellis. In fact, you're going to brief General Ellis. So we did that. I, li I like where this is going. <laughs> we did that, and, and um, General Ellis said, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> and I shook my head, and I walked out of there, and I said, uh, Ross, uh, you're going to be a great engineer officer one day. You know, you keep speaking up when you, when you think you have the right idea. Because it took a lot of gumption amongst all those colonels to say, you know what the answer is, when they couldn't provide it to me. He said, well, sir, I, I'm not going to be an engineer. I'm, I'm leaving the branch. I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, sir, I'm, I'm really not an engineer. I'm an architect. I'm, I'm an engineer branch, but I'm an architect. And I, I want to I go into the Medical Service Corps because they have architects in the Medical Service Corps. I didn't know that. But here's Second Lieutenant. He'd done all his homework. He knew what he wanted to be. So he was managing his own talent. So uh, a couple decades later, I'm talking to General Schoomaker, and I'm in his hallway at the Surgeon General's office, and, and there's all these pictures of hospitals uh, that, that we're building around the Army. And, and I said, General Schoomaker, by any chance, you ever heard of a guy named Ross Davidson? He said, oh, you mean Colonel Davidson? I said, he's a colonel already? He says, oh, yeah, Lieutenant Colonel, but Lieutenant Colonel Ross Davidson. He says, Tom, he designed all the Army hospitals. Holy cow. That's awesome. This is, this is, that's diversity, that's talent management. Here, I, I almost wasn't going to listen to this young man. <laughs> but way back in Bosnia, he spoke up. And, and I think in this high-tech world that we live in, the older guys today, <laughs> I mean, I'm constantly looking at my son, tell, tell me how to do this better, tell me how to do this faster. And, and I, I think in these meetings that we have, you have to bring the young people into the dialogue. Uh, yes, the decision makers at the senior level are going to make the decisions, but bring them into the dialogue. I want to talk a little bit about uh, diversity and talent management and, and some of the challenges that we face. Um, I was, I was in the personnel business for seven years. You, you talked about I was in recruiting. I want to tell you the, the talent management that got me into recruiting command. I was, um, I was assigned, to, I came out of Iraq, they made me the deputy chief of engineers, two-star job. We bought a house, my wife uh, became a principal, uh, we were all settled into our new life in Washington, D.C. And 45 days into my job, after I picked my aide and my executive officer, um, I got a call from GOMO that said, um, I'm going to recruiting command. And I said, oh, I, are there two Bostics? I, I think you have the wrong one. I, I mean, I just, I just 
came here. <laughs> I just arrived. I bought a house. My wife has a job as a principal. I'm not going anywhere. And they said, well, General Boston, we, we know all that, but you know, we just failed recruiting, and we'd like you to go out there and take on recruiting command. I said, you know I've never been to recruiting command. I, I don't know anything about recruiting command. And oh, by the way, I just bought a house. My wife's got a job as a principal. I just came back from 15 months in Iraq. I'm not going anywhere. Sir, we need you out there in two months, and we'll be cutting the orders. And I said, wait a minute, out where? Where's recruiting command? <laughs> he said, Kentucky. I said, you guys are crazy. So anyway, I pack up my bag. They say, you're only going to be out there for 18 months. And four years later, after being a geographical bachelor for four years, I come back. <laughs> but it was one of the finest assignments I, I've ever had. I, I loved recruiting command, learned so much from the recruiters and the families and, and about America and, and about people. But sometimes talent management, you, you know, people are managing you. They, they knew better that, than I did what was good for me. In fact, I never asked for a job in the Army. And most jobs that I was assigned to, I thought I was completely unqualified for the job that they were sending me to. But I, I learned and I grew, and, and that's what the Army does. And, that's what our military does. It puts you in these new environments to train you to learn new skills. And then after four years there, they made me the G1 of the Army. And after that, I was the chief of, chief of engineers. And when I went to become the chief of engineers, uh, the Army leadership said, you need to fix the diversity problem in the Corps of Engineers. I said, oh, OK. I really wasn't aware of the diversity problem in the Corps of Engineers. So I called in all the generals, and there were about 25 of them, and there was a Caucasian uh, female general, and there was me, and that was it. And then, um, so I called in all the, the colonels that were district commanders, so not the field commander, but all the 42 district commanders, and then also um, the lieutenant colonel commanders. And there was one African-American female district commander. And I said, oh, I better start early. I'm going to start with the captains. And I, I called up HRC and I said, give me the 25 best engineer captains in the Army. And I said, the 25 generals, you're going to call one of those captains and you're going to encourage them to come to Washington, develop themselves, do White House fellowship, congressional fellowship, be an aide, work in the Pentagon. And we're going to, we're going to work on this. So I, I get the list from HRC, 25 of the best cap engineer captains in the Army, according to HRC, and there's one female and one African-American. So I said, oh, I guess I better start earlier. <laughs> so so I, I went to West Point to, to welcome the 127 cadets that chose the engineer branch. Now, I'm keenly aware of what's in my pipeline, which is not much. And I go to West Point and I look at the 127 cadets and there are two African-Americans. So I come back to the Pentagon and I was talking to the Army leadership and I, I said, hey, I've got it figured out. I'm, I'm going to fix the diversity problem in the Corps. No problem. And uh, he said, great, great. Uh, when are you going to have it fixed, General Bostic? And I said, right around 2045, I, I think I'll, I'll have it fixed, you know, because we don't hire laterally. And it was like, what are you talking about? And I, I explained the pipeline. Now, you've got people that are in the middle that maybe they can elevate up and, and be in that top 10%. But 
But this starts really early. It starts with recruiting. And then, it, and then, it's, then it's retention. And then it's talent management and development and getting all of those skills that you need in order to produce the leaders that you have at the end of the day. You don't fix it when I bring the 25 generals in the office. So um, I wanted to just give you that on talent management. Uh, this is a challenge for all of us. I am so happy that the Secretary of the Army and the Chief Staff of the Army and TRADOC and, and the other installations are making people the number one priority. Um, I remember I was the Chief Engineer and it was in my second year and one of the generals pulled me aside and he says, hey, hey sir, you have to stop being the G1 of the Army. You're, you're the chief of engineers. You need to be the chief of engineers, not the G1 of the Army. Because I was always talking people. And I said, listen, the engineering's the easy part. It's the people where we need to put all our focus. So, so where the leadership of the Army is in terms of focusing on people is critically important. And I, I, I couldn't think of a, a, a better priority for the Army to put its weight behind in order to make a difference. So with those opening comments, I'd, I'd love to take any questions that you might have. Well, sir, uh, I know we've, I know they're stacking up. Uh, and, and as I said, uh, the first time uh, we introduced the LPD, there was a lot of comments like, okay, I hear you. And I, I think we're delivering right now. So I'm fascinated by uh, this uh, discussion we're having. Uh, but you know, one thing I learned uh, coming to training and doctrine command was uh, that it's not just about green suitors. Uh, you know, uh, pretty much my whole military life, it's been camouflage uniforms. So when I came to training and doctrine command, I, I was, uh, my eyes were open to the number of uh, professional Department of the Army civilians we have at Echelon, uh, all the way up to uh, general officer counterparts, uh, which I'm sure you experienced in the Corps of Engineers. So, you know, I hear you loud and clear on the military side of this uh, diversity and inclusion, talent management. What, what uh, specifically can you tell us about working with the Department of the Army civilians and that could be of value to them? Absolutely. This is a, a very important area. And for me, I, it's important, you know, for a number of reasons. When I was a G1, we had a million soldiers and 330,000 civilians. I mean, that's a lot of civilians. And, and I spent a lot of time working with the SESs and the GS-15s and, and some of those decision makers. But they have the same challenge of, of growing a, a, a cadre, building a pipeline of leaders that are well qualified uh, by the time they reach the senior levels. So one of the things in the core that we started working on and just to give you some background, the Corps is about 37,000 people. And when people think about the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, there are seven, 700 soldiers out of the 37,000 in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So it's mostly civilians. And they're wonderful civilians. But the type of talent management that we have on the military side does not translate well enough on the civilian side. So one of the things we did, uh, and we tried to keep things simple, but one of the things we did was an aspirational survey. And, and I said, let's, let's do an aspirational survey. So the HR said, well, what's that? And I said, well, let's just ask some of our younger folks, what do they aspire to? Do, do they even aspire 
to being an SES uh, or a GS-15. So we started at the 14s and the 15s, and we sent this survey out, and we asked them, do you want a mentor? Um, do you aspire to be a GS-15 or SES? Um, would you be willing to move? And those types of questions. And, it's, and some of the things that, that really surprised me, about 50% said they wanted a mentor. It was almost 60% that said they would move. And I always thought the reason you wanted to be a civilian is so you didn't have to move. I moved 27 times in 38 years, so you know, I don't think anybody wants to do that. But, but this survey said that civilians were willing to move. So, so that's one thing is you, you have to understand your people, you have to understand what's in your pipeline, and then you have to start early. So you remember I, I talked about young people. Um, I remember, and I was telling this story uh, earlier today, but I was giving a speech out in San Francisco, and, and, and somebody asked me a question about knowledge management. This is maybe 10 years ago, and not that it makes a big difference, I, but, but I answered the question uh, totally wrong. And I asked my aide, how'd I do? And she says, we, you really messed up that question on knowledge management. And I realized, and I studied, and I, and I I worked hard on uh, understanding what knowledge management was all about. And then when we had our, our big national conference, we, we made knowledge management the focus of attention. And I brought young people, some of our best young people, we flew them to Washington from some of these districts, including the person that asked me the question from San Francisco. And we put them in the audience and we asked them to tell the generals and the SESs what knowledge management meant, meant to you, why it was so important, and what we needed to do in order to make knowledge management something that, that stuck in the Corps of Engineers. So part of this is you don't have to move. You don't have to physically move and, 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 and come to the, to the Pentagon, but, but if you go there for an assignment, if you go there to do a briefing, if you come into a big conference and you make leaders that are in that pipeline able to, to, to learn and, and, and operate in an environment where they might be years later, I remember when I was a young major, uh, I went to the Hill for the first time, and, and my, my boss was a one-star. And I didn't know anything about Congress and, and the Hill, and this guy, there was a young guy, a staffer across the table, and he was just yelling and screaming at my general and making him sound, I, I, I did the, almost came out of, and the general put his foot on my, and, and I, I said, okay, this is how it works. And, and, you know, I've testified 33 times over the years. Um, and, and there were days I felt like coming out of the chair. But, but I learned from that first time that my general took me to the hill that you, you don't do that. You, you know, you, you don't show emotion in front of the Congress, even though you may be as ticked off as all get out, you know. There's a reason they sit higher in, in, when you're testifying, because they, they are higher. And Congress set that up for a reason, but there's ways you can you can get people involved. So that experience there as a major, one trip to Washington, in, going to the Hill, helped me. I, I won't say it helped me for all 33 of my hearings, but there were times I thought back when I was biting my tongue <laughs> that General Lee told me not to do this, and and it and it stuck with me. So I think whether it's a civilian or a military. That, that you can, you can, there's ways that we can help our, 
or civilian cohort. The other thing we started was an MBA program up in Syracuse for our civilians. So, so we, there were things that we tried to mimic that were on the, the military side of talent management on the civilian side. And I had a, I had a military aide and, I, I, and, and a civilian, not aide, but a civilian person that, that really helped me. And, and, and her, her name was Sherry Moore. And, and Sherry would go with us to a lot of the different events. And I remember uh, one day we were flying in a helicopter and I didn't realize she'd never been in a helicopter, so she was really nervous, but it was Superstorm Sandy, and the only way we're gonna get up there was uh, quickly was by helicopter. So she jumped in and, and went by helicopter. So I think these are the kind of things, and I think TREDAC does that well, but what I would say, the other thing about talent management, it, it, ha it cannot just be the leaders. It has to be in the depths of the organization that people understand this is important. I'll give you an example. I was, um, when I was the chief of engineers, and I had a reputation for really focusing on talent management and diversity. And I had a civilian friend, he, he went to West Point with me and he got a Harvard MBA. And um, he, uh, he said, hey Tom, you're about ready to lose this really sharp young uh, female officer out of the Corps of Engineers. And, and I said, so what, what's the problem? And, and he says, well, her, her boss, I think a lieutenant colonel at the time, said that she's got no future in the Corps of Engineers um, because she missed a gate. Um, you know, I don't know if it was company command or something, but, but guys like General Martin and General Funk and me, we can fix a bunch of things. There's nothing that you cannot really fix. Uh, I mean, big problems are, are hard, but most things, you know, we write regulations and we have policies because we're this huge organization. But if, if there are outliers, there's reasons to make exceptions and do things, you, you, you find a way to do that. But you got to get generals and SESs involved. So anyway, I, I, the other thing was she graduated from Harvard and she was a Rhodes Scholar. So, so I call up Engineer Branch and I said, hey, find the female Rhodes Scholar. And they call me back and say, sir, we only have two Rhodes Scholars, they're both male. So I call my buddy up, I said, can I have her social? So I give the social, and, and uh, they say, oh, sir, she, she was an engineer. She transferred last month to another branch. And that's how you lose it. I, I mean, so, so here I am managing <laughs> this pipeline, and I've got people below me making decisions that are affecting my pipeline. So, so part of what, and, and if it's in the culture, if, if people know that we only have I mean, when I looked at that pipeline and I told you about the African-Americans, the women were just the same. It was like, I have two highly qualified in this year group, none in this group, one in this year group, and then three in this year group. And, and then I have a, a lieutenant colonel or, or major giving guidance to a young woman who I could have I fixed the situation, but I didn't find out about it until after the fact. So part of what, if the culture understands the challenges that the Army's going through, if the culture understands the importance of talent management, if the culture understands the value of diversity, then, then you have a chance of winning this, this fight for talent. So that's a long answer to your question. Well, sir, but, that, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm itching to see what uh, the field is asking because uh, I think we've generated uh, record 
I'll bet. I'm just betting. We've got a lot of questions out there. Well, we definitely got a few uh, in advance over social media from the field as well. And I, I think you just mentioned it, um, and it ties back to the AUSA conference that we had last week with people being the number one priority. I'm Obviously, a webinar like this is probably a good for a start, uh, but how is the culture going to change? Um, what, what are some practical, uh, tangible things that we can do in the Army in order to ensure that you know, the Army evolves as the Secretary of the Army has asked us to do? Well, first, I, you know, it, it's, a, it's a complex question, and I can't give a, a simple answer to it. But I think it starts with leadership. It, it starts with the leadership saying it's a priority and then executing on it uh, like it's a priority. And, and then you've got you've to get it down into the culture of the organization. And, and you have to showcase the examples of where we, we got it wrong and, and then how do we fix it and how, how do we adjust the system and the processes so that we don't lose talent. I'm going to give you another example. So, so I'm the G1 of the Army, and it's Christmas. And I go downstairs, and there's this African-American warrant officer says, hey, sir, um, would you autograph this photo? And so I autographed the photo. I said, that's a handsome young man. Who is he? He said, oh, that, sir, that's my son. I said, he's, he's an engineer. And he said, yes, sir, proud engineer. I said, well, you tell him to call me if he ever needs anything. Well, he needed something right then, but his dad wasn't about to tell me. So uh, a year goes by, and now I'm the chief of engineers. And a general officer, African-American general officer, calls me up. She goes, now, Tom, I, I know you're really fighting for talent. You're managing your talent. But you're about ready to lose a young African-American captain, who happens to be my aide. <laughs> and I go, oh, gosh, what's, this, what's the issue? And she mentioned the name. I said, I know that guy. I told him if he had a problem to get in touch with me. He said, well, he had the same problem last year. I said, what was that? He said, well, he uh, applied to school, and, and he applied to MIT, and, and MIT said, we're going to give you a full ride. And I said, okay, so why didn't he go? He goes, well, you know, the war was going on. They couldn't let captains go, and they, they only had so many captains they could let go, but he wasn't one of them. And he said, okay, salute, drive on, I'm go to my next assignment. And he became the aide. So uh, he applies to MIT, and MIT says, yeah, same deal. We'll pay for everything. Army doesn't have to pay. Uh, full ride scholarship, come on in. And um, they had the board, and he missed it by like two. He missed the cutoff for CSL uh, by two. So he was told he's not going. He didn't think he had three lives. So he, he planned on getting out of the Army. And that's when I got involved. So, I called up HRC and I said, hey, you know, what's, what's going on? And they said, well, sir, you missed it by a couple. And I said, well, do the people in front of them have full rides to any place so that um, the Army doesn't have to pay? And he said, no, sir. I, I said, so why aren't you saying this? <laughs> so anyway, he goes to MIT. And, and sit, two years later, I'm speaking at an MCOM conference. And after I speak, an MIT professor speaks. And the MIT professor comes down afterwards and he goes, hey, uh, General Bostic, I don't know if you know, but we had this young captain come up to MIT, 4-0 average, best student we've had for years. Thanks for sending him up. <laughs> so you have no idea what I had to do to manage that talent. 
so, so again, I, I mean, you have to get it in the culture. And then we said, okay, you know, I don't like making exceptions, you just make exceptions. So we, we rewrite the policy. And we say, okay, if you know this happens, that happens, and you know, so so that's so there's a way that leaders can can help, but guys shouldn't feel that they they have their hands tied behind their back uh, if they approach a situation that doesn't make sense to them, and they they find no way that they can they can get out. So absolutely. Well, you know, yesterday on Facebook, Alex chimed in and he had a, a really good question. And it goes to your time uh, as the USERAC commander as well. Right now, we do not have the diversity that we need in the combat arms, both officer and enlisted. So what should we be doing in order to get that talent from the American people into the Army? Yeah, that's another great question and one that, just from the pipeline point I was talking to you about, we had the year I went to West Point, 2013, we had two African Americans. The next year we had eight, and, and it has steadily risen. So part of this is recruiting, and you have to aggressively recruit. And I, I felt badly because I went to General Brooks and uh, General, General um, Austin, and I, I knew that by taking more into the Corps of Engineers, the infantry was losing out. So, you know, it's got to be an Army-wide effort, and, and I know the Army is, is looking at it from uh, West Point to ROTC and how do you, you fill the combat arms um, branches. But uh, the other part of it is education and mentors. I think, I think mentors and, and education and, and constantly recruiting and engaging. Um, I will tell you, even when I left West Point, I had no idea what branch to go to and why. I, I studied engineering. I was really good at engineering, so I thought, you know, that's what I'll, I'll go do. And then. But I, I was a ranger. I went to ranger school as a cadet, so there was a part of me, there were 25 of us that went to ranger school, and most of us went, those went to infantry. So part of me felt like I, I made a mistake. So I said, well, let me go engineers, and if I made a mistake, I'll just branch transfer. So within a year, I was trying to branch transfer. And then I realized that engineer was a shortage branch, and infantry was an overage branch, and you couldn't branch transfer. In the end, it worked out for me. I'm very happy to be a combat engineer, but I, and things have changed since then at West Point, but, but I think part of this is, no kidding, informing the cadets about what's uh, in ROTC or, or at West Point, what, what's, what's the pluses and minuses of each branch, how do those align with the talents and aspirations that you may have, and, and really, you know, long term for a cadet, you know, if you're talking to them today, long term's like next Friday. Okay, they, they, so, so, so it's hard for them to comprehend, you know, what they're going to do five years from now or 20 years from now. But, but you have to try, and, and as many role models that you can send in that can do that uh, means a lot. I remember Joe Ellis taught PE when I was a cadet. I'll never forget him. Boxing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I used to tell Joe Ellis, sir, can you count past three? He goes, what are you talking about? I, I used to say this, I'd, I'd kid with him when I was a brigade commander. Because, sir, every time I had to do pull-ups, you'd stop at three. And you'd just go, three, three? He said, well, sir, he told me I had to do them right to get the four. But anyway, so he was, he was one of the, those role models that was out there. You know, another one I had was I used to go over to his house um, once a month, and I really didn't like to go because he taught English, and I was an engineer. 
and I didn't do too well in English. And his name was Captain Shinsaki. And, and I wondered, I wonder where this guy's gonna go in life, you know? <laughs> and he really, he was quite the mentor, quite, you know, so I think mentors help, it really does. And it helps on the civilian side. Um, you know, Sarah over here, you know, we, we've known each other. We hooked and jabbed in the Pentagon and, and did a lot of late nights. And, you know, and you don't want to be in those jobs all the time, but, you know, my rule on, was on Friday, we all left at 7 o'clock. You know, I don't know if the SIG left at 7 o'clock, but my front office, 7 p.m., we were out of the office, and I felt like I was being nice to them. You, you know, you know so, but you have to take on some of these jobs, unfortunately, where, you know, the pace is just unrelenting, but you go back and forth. I, I spent 14 years in, in Washington, but you, then you go back to the troops, and your love and life and your, your, your training and in that sort of environment. Any thoughts to add on that? Well, actually, uh, you know, so I wanted to go back because I don't know if you're tracking, uh, you know, what can we do to change things? Recently, the Secretary of the Army pulled pictures from the promotion board. I don't know if you're tracking that. So we've had a number of promotion boards where the file stands alone. Of course, you can still tell gender by the name. Yeah. You can, you know, do you, do you think that's far enough uh, because there's some chatter out there about uh, sanitizing efficiency reports so you can't tell because sometimes you can make a, you know, you can, you can pull a thread and figure out, you know, male, female, certainly, uh, but you may be able to get some ethnic background. I mean, trying to reduce biases, even if they're uh, invisible biases. I'm curious as yeah. what your thoughts would be. And I, I don't want to disagree with the Army, but since I'm a civilian now, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wondered about this picture, you know, and taking that out and, and how much of an impact that's going to have. I will tell you that there was a board um, that for, for one star, when I was the G1, and the results of that board came back in and I mean, the whole building shook. I mean, there was like, there was zero diversity. There was zero gender diversity. There was zero ethnic diversity. And it was like, we just, how could that happen? So I was on the board the next year. <laughs> I was on with General Lloyd Austin. And I mean, we were sweating bullets because the, the message was that better not happen again. And, and one of the things, we, we, when we saw those pictures, gender and ethnicity, for me, it, it, it helped. It, I would have been really nervous if I didn't at least have a shot to really consider, you know, when, when I looked at those pictures, really make sure we're doing right by considering that person. The, the challenge I think we have, one of the challenges I think we have is tribes. I, I think the tribes, and when I think of tribes, I'm thinking, you know, the different units, 82nd, you know, 101st, and you know, you kind of grow up in some of these organizations, and the, the tribes, uh, in my view, sometimes that, that's a, a stronger pull than even the, the ethnicity issue. So, so I, I think we have to look at that. and, and the other thing I think that is good is is really serving around the Army. 
in, in not staying in one location. Now, there's some places where if you're Delta or you're Special Forces or you're Ranger, you know, some of these units, you, 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 you're in for a good part of your career. But even there, we're trying to get some balance in, in the leadership. But I was very fortunate. I served in 1st Infantry Division, 1st Armored Division, 1st Cavalry Division, 8th Infantry Division, served in, in the 5th Corps on the border. So I, I had a lot of varied experiences. And I think that we've got to do more of that. But, but I think, you know, the Air Force took the pictures out 20 years ago. I, I was talking to the A-1, and they took the pictures out 20 years ago. And the Air Force is, you know, they're like the Army in terms of challenging situation with diversity. So, so I think we're going to learn as we go what, what is going to make the difference. But, but I, I, I kind of pinch myself a little bit when the pictures went because um, I, I just did. And it may be the right, right decision. I don't know. Sure. Well, the next question is uh, one of credibility. Um, and this came, came from online as well. And, and they talk about people mattering, about it being an important motto that we're hearing a great deal about. How do you think we show that it's not just a motto, but the foundation of our leaders? So, you know, walk the walk. Or tell you, if you're going to talk the talk, are you going to walk the walk? That's where this question, I think, is getting after. For me, uh, there's no better example than General Shinsaki on this. It starts with leadership, like most things, and the leadership sets the culture. And I was his executive officer. I was supposed to be his executive officer for one year. And I remember reporting, and, and General Shinsaki had this rule that between assignments you would take 10 days off. So I was called on the 10th of June, 1999 um, to be the executive officer to the chief, in, chief staff of the Army. And I was told by his current executive officer, John Gingrich, that I was to, I was doing the 55th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, so I was at Normandy on the 10th of June. And they asked me to come back, do all my OERs, pack up my family, um, moved to the United States, and when General Shinsaki took over on the 22nd of June, that I needed to be ready to be the XO. And as I was getting ready to hang up, uh, John said, and oh, by the way, you have to take 10 days of leave. That's General Shinsaki's policy. And I said, that's mathematically impossible. He goes, well, welcome to your first of many impossible tasks as the XO. Have a nice day. Hmm. So I walk in, and, and General Shinseki said, uh, Tom, great to have you here. Uh, did you take your 10 days? I said, sir, I didn't. He goes, I'll see you in 10 days. So, so I left. Uh, you know, During those 10 days, I saw my dad. And it was the last time I ever saw my dad. I mean, he passed away. And, and General Shinseki didn't know that. But he, he knew that people needed downtime. You couldn't go from one frying pan into another. And you needed downtime. But the, the real, another message of General Shinsaki that, you, you know, you never hear about him on television or the airwaves. He, it, it's all about the Army for, for him and, and many like him. But he and Patty or something else. And one day he called me and I was the XO. And he said, uh, Tom, did you read The Early Bird today? And I said, yes, sir, I read The Early Bird, as I do every day. And he goes, do you read uh, George Will's article on... Um, 
on Dan Johnson. I said, yes, sir, I, I read the article on Dan Johnson. He goes, well, I'd like to go see Dan Johnson. I said, well, great, sir, you've got your hearing at 10 o'clock. Um, why don't we set it up for this afternoon and you'll go after the hearing and you're, you're gonna defend the Army budget. He, he goes, no, I'll, I'll go this morning. And I said, well, sir, I, I've got your last prep and I've got everybody from the staff is here and we've got to prep you for the Army budget. Sir, Dan Johnson's gonna be at the hospital this afternoon. Could you see him this afternoon? And he says, no, no, I'm, I'm going this morning. And he said, call General Franks and see if he'd go with me. So I, I called General Franks. I said, General Franks, uh, it's kind of inside baseball for guys that are XOs. And I said, hey, General Franks, can you do me a favor? And I said, what? He said, General, General Shinseki wants to go see Dan Johnson. Maybe you can call General Shinseki and invite him to go with you this afternoon. And he goes, what's, he want, what's the chief want to do, Tom? He says, well, he wants to go this morning. I said, then that's what we'll do. So the two of them go up, and the story about Ensign Johnson, he's a Navy ensign. He's on this ship in Korea. You may know this story, but uh, he's on this ship in Korea, and, and it's being pulled out of Pusan, uh, Pusan, the bay there. And this rope gets wrapped around this sailor, his waist, and it's taking him to a chalk about that big. And everybody freezes except for Ensign Johnson. And Ensign Johnson runs up there, he takes all of this rope off of the sailor and it wraps around his two legs and takes his legs to the chalk and he loses his two legs. And General Shinseki's an amputee and General Franks is an amputee. And he, General Shinseki, he was arriving to Walter Reed that day and General Shinseki wanted him to know that it was gonna be okay and that you could rise to the highest levels even as an amputee. So anyway, it's like 9.30, <laughs> Joe Shinseki calls me up, he goes, I guess I don't have time for that prep you had scheduled. And I said, no, sir, you don't. And he goes, well, that's okay. And St. Johnson prepped me. He wants to run a marathon. His mother's a teacher, his mm. father's a preacher. He says, I'm gonna go up there. <laughs> so he goes up there, he knocks a home run, and then he just slips back into the Pentagon. The Navy doesn't know about this. Nobody knows about this except me, and now you. I mean, <laughs> nobody knows about this. And, and that's taking care of people. That, that's putting people first. Doesn't even matter if it's your own people. He, he just knew that this was something he had to right. do. And it didn't matter if it took away from his own personal time. Um, so, so that's an extreme case, but I, I, I'd say every day you have to think. You, you know, last, uh, night before last, I had a friend call me from California and there's this young uh, man, he, he, this kid, when I talked to him, he says, I'm a little bit older than most people come in the Army, I'm 27, but he's an IT specialist, software specialist, Silicon Valley. He wants to come in and be cyber. And my friend's a, a billionaire, and, and he called me, he's a classmate, uh, would, you, would you talk to this guy? So the guy calls me, I'm in Giant, and I'm shopping. And I'm finished shopping, but I, I didn't want to go to the cash register because he'd hear me, you know, ringing up all my things. So I do laps in Giant for the next 90 minutes. Mm. <laughs> you know? And he and I are talking about cyber and just, you know, how great the Army is. And I don't, I've never met this guy. I don't know him. I, this is the first phone call. But, but it was important to me because I got a lot of help. I wouldn't be here without people helping me. I, I should have never gotten into West Point. But somebody helped me. And, and Anytime somebody reaches out and says, can you help somebody? 
I, I, and, I, and I think if most leaders, and I think they do, take an approach, uh, that's how you make people in the culture. And if people know, people know General Shinseki did that sort of stuff, it rubbed off on me, it rubbed off on a lot of other folks, and with General Martin, and with General Funk, and with the Chief of Staff of the Army, and with the Secretary of the Army, what, what they say is really important, what they do is even more important, and what their people do is most important. Absolutely. And, and we're in an interesting environment, too. Um, so the, maybe the traditional ways of engaging, uh, we have to be a little bit more creative um, in, in getting that face time with our personnel. And you, General Martin, you and I had a, a brief conversation before getting started about how we're using technology during this pandemic uh, to keep the workforce engaged. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? And, and certainly, General Bostic, uh, during this COVID-19 experience, what do we need to do to keep the workforce plugged in? Well, sir, I think I share a lot of the same uh, trials and tribulations you do grappling with uh, all the new technology. And I rely very heavily on uh, the younger uh, folks at TRADOC to help me out. But uh, this, this isolation that's associated with uh, the COVID, you know, the requirement for force protection, safety, to keep, to keep uh, those that are at higher risk safe, has really put a, a burden on us. I was, I was just curious as to, you know, how we might better crack that code. It's another, another tough one. Um, we're, we're all here today and, and we're, you know, we've been tested and socially distanced and we've been able to make this all work. So, um, and you can't do it on a large scale, but the human connection I think is very important and you have to create a battle rhythm almost and when do you bring people in and how do you bring people in to have some face-to-face -face, uh, interaction. And it, it's not gonna be as frequent as it used to be, at least for now until um, things have, have settled down. But I think looking for opportunities where people can really come together. And, and, um, and then there's some social times you can have. It, it's, it's hard to have social time on Zoom, but I've had dinner with friends on Zoom and tried to enjoy opportunities that way. Um, I'm gonna be in a, an event where H.R. McMaster is gonna talk about his book and we're all gonna have dinner together virtually. And I think that'll be kind of fun. We're not doing work. We're, we're just having fun. Mm -hmm. um, but if, I think there's ways you can try to have fun both virtually and then try to find intermittent ways where you can bring people together. You know, we're, we're getting close to our closing moments here. So we've talked about mentorship a lot and, and how, uh, you know, it's, it's important to maintaining talent and developing talent. But how does mentorship actually look? Um, I've seen mandatory programs. Uh, should it be something voluntary that, that people participate in? And, and what should the individuals get out of it? Um, I had mentioned that I probably shouldn't have gone to West Point because I had I tried to get a congressional nomination and the congress congressmen had already given their nominations away. So my plan, I applied to go to the to the community college to be a carpenter. And this one-star general retired, uh, came to my high school, he says, I understand you want to go to West Point. And I said, not anymore. And he said, why? And he goes, well, I can't get a, a nomination. And he says, have you thought about getting a presidential nomination? 
He said, you're a general, right? And he said, yes. He said, I just told you I can't get a congressional nomination. Now you, you want me to go to, to the president and get a nomination? And he says, well, he has a hundred of these for kids in the military. And my dad was in the military. And the rest is history. So I, I, I felt like he was one of my first, other than my parents, a, a guy that mentored me, showed me. He didn't apply for me. He just, he, he, he helped me understand what my options were. And, and he helped me talk through those. And, and I think mentors come in and out of your life from time to time. And, and, and for me, it, it, it showed me the way. Uh, for the mentor, they're, they're helping. And sometimes the mentor pushes you really hard. And, they, 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 and I think about vision and mentors. And they, they've, they've been there and they've seen things that younger people haven't seen. So when they ask you or tell you or advise you, you think they're crazy because this, this can't be, this can't be possible. I hope my kids are listening right now. <laughs> I mean, you say what you're saying can't be possibly done, but but they've actually done it without telling you. That they're just, they probably even know the answer, but they're just go 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 give that. And I, General Ellis used to do this with me when I was a colonel. And uh, do I have time for a quick story? Really quick, because okay. this hour is flying okay. by. Okay, I'm not going to tell this one, but it, you know, I, I, you know, Major General Ellis, I was a colonel, and he, he had all the colonels around, and, and he told us, could we, he wanted us to do something, and almost all the colonels said no. And out of that, you had two future three stars, and two star, and a one star, and we thought the guy was crazy, and, and, and he was right. You know, and I think that happens at every level, and you, so you have to be careful when you're a mentor. You don't really know what the, or the mentee. When you're the mentee, you don't know that mentor's experiences, and some things may really sound way off. Absolutely. Well, I can't believe how fast this hour has gone through, and unfortunately, that's all the time for questions that, that we have. Um, but a, a fascinating discussion. Lieutenant General Martin, do you have any final thoughts here? I'll tell you what, um, we said we'd deliver. Sir, you delivered for Training and Doctrine Command today. Thanks. On behalf of General Funk and Command Sergeant Major, uh, we want to thank you for uh, giving us your time. And folks, I hope you know that you, you, that you're, you are inside the tent hearing from uh, a senior leader who's been there and done that. Thanks, sir. Thanks for everything. Well, thanks. It's been a great opportunity to be here with TRADOC. I, I really always admired this command and, and the Army, and this is my first time really coming back to the Army. And, and you, you know, when I was talking to that young 27-year-old in, in the Giant, um, he, he, he actually asked me why, why I was spending so much time with him. And I told him the same story I told you all about this General Wall. You know, General Wall was from the class of 1917 at West Point, and, and he reached out to me, and he made a difference for me. And, and there's, a, there's a quote by Nelson Henderson. He was a farmer, and he said, you know, the true meaning in life is to plant trees under whose shadow you may not sit. So for, for me, I graduated from West Point, and then uh, in 78, and in 81, General Wall passed away. So, so he planted me as that tree that he never sat under the shadow of me as a captain, a major, or any other rank, but, but he knew it was important to invest in me in some way. 
So for all of our soldiers and civilians that are out there as leaders uh, and as mentees, um, the time we invest in, in young people um, or people any age, that, that time we invest is going to be very meaningful to them in their future. And although you may never see the, the fruits of your labor, you'll have to know that you made a difference. So it's been my great pleasure to be with you today, and I look forward to future opportunities. Awesome. Uh, but thank you. Thank you, General Bostic. Thank you very, very much for your time. General Martin, thank you very much for being here. Uh, again, uh, these LPDs are fantastic learning experiences. The conversation doesn't start here. There are questions that came in, and so leaders from throughout the TRADOC enterprise and hopefully from outside of TRADOC uh, will also answer some of those questions um, in little uh, short snippets for social media. But we're looking forward to our next conversation. Um, please join us on 17 November, 1100 Eastern which will feature Ed, Edward Obi West Wilson. He's going to provide his unique perspective on preventing sexual assault and harassment. Until then, thank you very much for watching. Thank you, generals, very much for being here. Victory starts here. Right here.